Good evening and welcome. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. On the news hour tonight, northwestern Syria struggles to recover from that deadly earthquake as politics hamper efforts to provide aid. Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox News reveals the network's hosts didn't believe the election fraud lies they pushed in the wake of former President Trump's 2020 defeat. And a man who was released after spending 28 years in prison for a murder he did not commit reflects on his wrongful conviction. I could not imagine giving up on something that I know was rightfully taken from me. Good evening and welcome to the news hour. The death toll from the devastating earthquake that struck Turkey and Syria topped 43,000 people today. That number is sure to keep climbing now that more search teams have reached the hardest hit areas. Against all odds, rescuers are still pulling people out alive from the wreckage 11 days later. In the Turkish city of Antakya today, this 40-year-old man was freed after spending 278 hours under the rubble. But the window for finding more signs of life is closing quickly. Officials in Ohio say new testing has shown that the public drinking water in East Palestine is safe to drink after a train derailment left behind toxic chemicals earlier this month. But the state still recommends those who use private wells continue drinking bottled water. Governor Mike DeWine told residents that the air quality is safe as well. Today they have sampled air in over 500 separate homes. Uh, they've also sampled, continue to sample air uh, out on the streets uh, and throughout the community. Um, so far, they've had no detection of contaminants, no detection of contaminants. The governor also said that a chemical plume in the Ohio River has now completely dissipated and that there is no reason, he says, for concern. Five former Memphis police officers have pleaded not guilty to second-degree murder and other charges in the beating death of Tyree Nichols. The officers made their first court appearance today before a state judge. All five were fired and are now out on bond. Nichols' mother was in the courtroom and later reacted to the arraignment. I want each and every one of those police officers to be able to look me in the face. They, they haven't done that yet. They couldn't even do that today. They didn't even have the courage mm. to look at me in my face mm. after what they did to my son. Nichols died last month in the hospital, three days after being brutally beaten during his arrest. The former officer's next hearing is set for May 1st. The U.S. military has finished recovering all the debris from the Chinese balloon shot down off the coast of South Carolina. U.S. Northern Command officials still maintain it was being used for spying. Now that all of the remnants have been collected from the ocean floor, they'll undergo further analysis at the FBI lab in Virginia to determine exactly what the balloon was monitoring. The U.S. Department of Labor has fined one of the country's largest cleaning services for meatpacking plants $1.5 million for hiring minors. It says they employed more than 100 children, some as young as 13 years old, to clean razor-sharp equipment with dangerous chemicals. They worked at 13 meatpacking plants across the country, including the JBS and Turkey Valley Farms. In northeast Syria, four U.S. troops were injured during a helicopter raid in Syria that killed a senior ISIS leader Thursday night, according to the U.S. military. The U.S. service members, as well as a working dog, were wounded during the raid when there was an explosion. The raid killed Hamza al-Hamzi, a senior ISIS leader. The operation was conducted with the help of Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces. In Germany, the war in Ukraine dominated discussions at the annual Munich Security Conference today, ahead of the first anniversary of the Russian invasion. With about 40 world leaders in attendance, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky appealed for more support, comparing his country's struggle to a David versus Goliath battle. We need to hurry up. We need the speed, speed of our agreements, speed of our delivery to strengthen our sling, speed of decisions to limit Russian potential. There is no alternative to speed because it is the speed that the life depends on. 
Vice President Kamala Harris is among those attending the conference. She's set to make a major speech tomorrow on what's at stake in Ukraine. Anti-regime protests have erupted across Iran, the most widespread demonstrations in weeks. Video posted on social media overnight showed protesters marching through the streets of several cities to mark 40 days since two demonstrators were executed. The unrest first erupted in September after the death of a woman in morality police custody. Human Rights Watch estimates Iran's violent crackdown on dissent has killed more than 500 people. And stocks were mixed on Wall Street today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average gained 130 points to close at 33,827. The Nasdaq fell 68 points. The S&P 500 slipped 11. And still to come on the news hour, a man wrongfully convicted of murder speaks out after being released from prison. South Carolina becomes a focal point for the 2024 election as former Governor Nikki Haley launches her campaign. And David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart weigh in on the week's political headlines. This is the PBS NewsHour from WETA Studios in Washington and in the West from the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. Turkey's interior minister said today that over 80,000 buildings in his nation were either destroyed or have become uninhabitable after last week's quake. The situation across the border in Syria is dire for the millions left homeless, so many of whom already suffered greatly through nearly 12 years of war. Supplying shelter and aid is a prime focus there now. But remarkably, people are still being pulled from the rubble after a week and a half. Another miraculous rescue. Mustafa Avci was pulled from the rubble in Antakya after more than 10 days. His first phone call was to his brother. I would die to see you smile, he told him. But most hope has faded elsewhere. In Karamanmarash, the epicenter of the second quake, Families finally found their loved ones only to bury them. We waited by the fire for 10 days to get the bodies of our family members from under the rubble. 10 days. Turkey is grieving and praying for those dead and alive. Across the border in Idlib city in northwest Syria, Nine-year-old Noor Mohammed has been alone at this hospital since the earthquake. Today, she's being taken to her father. Their first embrace in 11 days. In the tent city of Salkin, thousands of Syrian families now left to live in the ruins. There's hunger. And a childhood scarred. Muhammad Ali and his children were lucky to survive, but nothing much is left of their home. They've lost 27 members of their family. The remaining survivors live in this tiny tent, 17 men, women and children. Everything they now own piled in this corner. We need tents to use as makeshift bathrooms. We've not cooked a single meal since the earthquake. The first day or two, they brought us meals. Since then, it's closed and they've given us nothing. We need gas, things to cook with. At the tent next door, 25-year-old Absi Ahmed Obeidi and his aunt, Zara Abidi, struggle to care for his four-month-old. He's all they have left. Ahmed lost his parents and sister. His wife is seriously injured. We need everything. What can I tell you? I'm in this tent and all we have is a space heater. No food, not drinks, nothing. I left barefoot. I didn't take anything from the building I lived in. It's all rubble. We don't have milk for this child. We don't have anything but this tent. Some people gave some rice that we made starch from for the child to eat. We don't matter. We're used to it, but not our children. We need things like milk, diapers, warm clothes, and health services. The needs here are enormous, but hopes have long since dwindled for these Syrians displaced by yet another calamity. 
For more on this, we turn now to Dr. Zahir Sadul, president and co-founder of Med Global, an organization that provides medical support to conflict zones around the world. He was raised in Syria, went to medical school there, came to the United States in the early 1990s. Dr. Sadul, welcome and thank you for joining us. Tell, a little, tell us a little bit about what your team is doing right now, what they're able to do on the ground in Syria and what additional aid is needed. Thank you, Amina, for having me. Um, our team started working right after the earthquake. We have a team of 200 doctors and nurses and uh, humanitarian workers. Uh, we run two hospitals and multiple clinics. Um, as you know, uh, this is an area that has 4.2 million people. Half of them are displaced from other parts of Syria. So um, our surgeons have been doing surgeries nonstop, more than 700 uh, procedures between major uh, operations and smaller operations. Uh, we also mobilized a mobile clinic to provide uh, healthcare services uh, to the uh, victims of uh, the earthquake that uh, now lost their homes and they are in temporary shelters. So they're providing um, nutritional support for the children and the pregnant women, um, medications for patients with chronic diseases, psychosocial support for everyone because everyone is traumatized, including our medical team. As you just described, as we just saw in the report, the need is so great. It is so enormous. We know now there are three border crossings that are open to aid after President Bashar al-Assad relented days after the earthquake. Is the aid that's coming in is enough, and is it going where it needs to go? It was too little and too late. Um, it took more than eight days for the aid to start flowing, and this is in a major disaster, an area that was hit by multiple disasters in the past. As everyone knows, this is an area that was the place of war for the past 12 years. Uh, there is a um, COVID pandemic for the past three years or so. There is a cholera outbreak. Uh, the weather is freezing cold. Uh, half of the population are displaced. And now you have this major earthquake. Uh, the area was not ready for this. Uh, the last major earthquake that hit Syria was more than 200 years ago. Um, and the flow started uh, coming tricky. Eight days after the the earthquake, because the border crossing was clo were closed because the damage that happened to the road is, and also because of the blockage from the Assad regime to the border crossing. Uh, but since uh, it, it it opened, uh, now we have more than hundred and forty uh, UN trucks that went through. It is not enough, uh, and uh, you know uh, people are feeling uh, deserted uh, by the international community after the earthquake. Now that the aid has started to flow, there are some concerns that uh, President Assad is exploiting this tragedy, that he's using it as an opportunity to sort of normalize himself and, and emerge from isolation back onto the global stage. Do you share that concern? You know, clearly the population in that area feels that way. Uh, this is an area that was bombed by the Assad regime frequently. Uh, there is a history here of the Assad regime uh, weaponizing uh, humanitarian aid. And uh, because of that, uh, people are fearful in Idlib that if uh, humanitarian assistance were given to the Assad uh, regime, then they will end up they will end up manipulating it as they have done in the past and preventing the population from getting any aid. Right now, the aid is flowing through the three border crossings, uh, Ar-Ra'i and Bab al-Hawa and Bab al-Salama. And this should continue and should be sustained. So that, that way people have access to life-sustaining food, medicine and shelter. So the, the problem here, and, and this is where I'd love your take, is how can the how can the United Nations, how can the U.S. continue to provide the aid that's needed, and at the same time not empower Assad? I think our U.S. policy was uh, clear and right, uh, which is basically providing the aid to the population through the local NGOs directly and through the UN, of course. Local NGOs should be supported and funded directly by the USAID and other international funders because they know what are the needs of the population. They react uh, much faster than the UN, as we have proved, proved in this uh, crisis. Medi Global team and other NGOs started uh, responding to the crisis few minutes after the earthquake. The UN took them more than eight days to get there. Uh, Unfortunately, what will come after the first shock from the earthquake will be even worse because of the outbreaks of diseases, including cholera and other conditions, and because of the malnutrition that will get worse, and because of the mental health trauma that affected the whole population. So uh, Syria should be lifted uh, as a priority to the U.S. administration 
and to the international community. The, the silver lining of the earthquake that people uh, are paying more attention to Syria, and maybe the Biden administration should pay more attention to ending the Syrian crisis politically and exerted all of its, exert all of its uh, diplomatic power to end the crisis. That is Dr. Zahir Salul, president and co-founder of Med Global. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. A new court filing shows top executives at Fox News and leading network personalities privately dismissed former President Donald Trump's false claims of voter fraud in the days that followed the 2020 presidential election, even as they pushed those same lies on television. Tonight, every American should be angry. You should be outraged. You should be worried. You should be concerned at what has happened in the election. The Dominion software system has been tagged as one allegedly capable of flipping votes. How, for example, did senile hermit Joe Biden get 15 million more votes than his former boss, rock star crowd surfer Barack Obama? The court filings reveal that behind the scenes, many of the network's top stars and executives derided Trump's election lies as, quote, mind-blowingly nuts and, quote, totally off the rails, even as they criticized colleagues for pointing that out on TV. The filing is part of an ongoing defamation lawsuit filed against the network by Dominion Voting Systems. Joining us now is David Folkenflik, who covers media for NPR. David, thanks for joining us. And first, explain how we learned about these text messages, how they're part of this nearly $2 billion defamation lawsuit filed against Fox. Right. It's a blockbuster case that's been filed by Dominion Voting Services uh, uh, Systems. And election tech company that is at the core of a lot of these fraudulent claims of fraud that were ventilated on Fox News in the immediate aftermath of the November 2020 elections. Uh, what we have here is this voluminous filing from uh, Dominion that appeared last uh, night. Uh, and what they're doing is making a motion trying to convince the judge that even before the trial portion of the, uh, of the case, uh, he should just decide the case in their favor. I don't think there's any real expectation that could happen. But what they have done is compile an almost encyclopedic record of what was happening in real time, drawing upon uh, text messages and emails and other communications, as well as sworn depositions in which Fox stars and executives and off-air journalists have been forced to acknowledge what they really thought about things under oath, in, under questioning from Dominion's lawyers. And it is a brutal, brutal portrait that we have seen about the, uh, the cynicism, the sense of crisis, uh, uh, the fear and the anger that was uh, generated inside of Fox uh, in reaction to their audiences recoiling uh, from the network's own call of Arizona for Joe Biden on election night, the first of any major network to do so. What becomes clear from reading through this filing is that Fox knowingly peddled election lies for ratings. There's a, a text in particular from Tucker Carlson, and he is suggesting here that a Fox News White House correspondent should be fired for fact-checking a Trump claim about the election. He says, please get her fired. I'm actually shocked. It needs to be stopped immediately, like tonight. It's measurably hurting the company. The stock price is down, not a joke. How concerned was Fox about losing viewers to their right-wing rivals? It was feverishly anxious about this issue, and this, it raised uh, fears inside. It raised vitriol inside, anger inside. You see that in private message between Tucker Carlson and, I believe, Sean Hannity. You saw the CEO, the chief executive of Fox News, Suzanne Scott, lashing out at Bill Salmon, their Washington managing editor, senior executive over political news for that network. Why? Because he took part in Fox News's call of Arizona for Joe Biden, which was exactly what its audiences didn't want to hear. And, you know, people talked internally about this breaking the credibility and trust between Fox News and its audiences, its viewership built up over a generation, over 25 years. You don't hear them talking about how credibility and trust can be broken by not sharing the truth with your audience, by not sticking to the facts. And yet, Fox News time and again brought on people, uh, including then-President Trump, but also his surrogates and champions, people like Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani, and others, to make claims that they were mocking and assailing, denigrating and trashing behind the air to one another because they knew it was false, but they were bringing them on. Why? To try to rebuild that trust in a hurry as 
millions of viewers fled Fox, often for a much smaller conservative rival called Newsmax. David, you mentioned Sidney Powell, the Trump ally conspiracy theorist lawyer. As Sean Hannity, even as he was giving her airtime, he later said in a deposition, quote, the whole narrative that Sidney Powell was pushing, I did not believe it for one second. How has Fox News responded to all of this? And what, if anything, does it do to their brand? Fox will say that they are reporting or they were reporting newsworthy allegations from inherently newsworthy people about inherently newsworthy events. That is the national elections and allegations by a sitting president. Could there be a more newsworthy person? They would say that uh, Fox News is standing in for the press writ large. There has to be robust room for there to be rhetoric and hyperbole and overstatement and, yes, at times misstatements when we're talking about important issues of national and political concern, because that's what the First Amendment envisions. You have to have running room. Otherwise, there isn't truly free speech. You've covered Fox News for more than 20 years. What stood out to you the most from this revelation? I think it is the most visceral and tangible proof uh, of one of the strongest criticisms of Fox, that it functions in many ways as a political operation and a business enterprise and wraps itself in the word news. Uh, even with a cadre of journalists, some of whom very much believe in reporting things straight, I think you saw the lie being given to that. And I think that you saw the cynicism uh, and the uh, antagonism to the idea that they be held responsible, they, that they behave responsibly, uh, and that they had any obligation to the truth and the facts. The facts. That's usually where people find credibility and trust. Uh, in this case, they saw it only in telling people what they wanted to hear. David Folkenflik covers the media for NPR. David, thanks again for your time. You bet. Earlier this week, a St. Louis judge overturned the murder conviction of Lamar Johnson, a man sentenced to life in prison in 1995 for the murder of Marcus Boyd. John Yang has more as part of our Searching for Justice series. John? Amna, in 2021, producer Frank Carlson and I looked into Johnson's case. We interviewed him in prison, spoke with Lindsey Runnels, one of his lawyers at the scene of the crime in question, and with St. Louis Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, who re-examined Johnson's case and became convinced of his innocence. Gardner's investigation turned up even more proof of Johnson's innocence. The prosecution eyewitness recanted, admitting he'd only identified Johnson because police told him Johnson was guilty. And her team found records showing prosecutors paid that witness more than $4,000 for housing and expenses, information that was never disclosed to the defense. So you have no evidence that he committed the crime. You have the confession of two other people that they committed the crime and that he did not. You've raised pretty good questions about whether or not the, the, the trial was fair. People will ask, then why is he in prison? And that's a good question. I mean, that's a good question. On Tuesday, after nearly 28 years behind bars, Johnson left the courtroom a free man. Friends, families, and supporters cheered him. And now here are Lamar Johnson and his attorney, one of his attorneys, Lindsey Ronalds. Uh, Lamar and Lindsey, thank you so much for joining us. Lamar, I want to tell you it's great to see you where you are rather than in the visitor's room at the Missouri State Penitentiary where we last met. But Lamar, it must have been a powerful moment when, number one, when the judge said that you are actually innocent, which is the legal term, uh, and then you walked out of the courtroom a free man. You didn't have guards. You didn't have anyone accompanying you for the first time in, what, 29 years? Yeah, 28. Yeah, 28. Yeah, that was uh, a, a freeing feeling. I, I, it's almost indescribable. And going out into that crowd was very overwhelming. And, but uh, it happened. It happened. It also must have been powerful, because uh, you, you told us all along that you just wanted to get uh, beyond the procedural matters that were keeping you uh, in prison and have a hearing. And you had that hearing in December and you were, you sat there in the courtroom, you heard the prosecutor and the police officer in charge of your investigation say under oath, they had no evidence uh, linking you to the crime. What was that? Was that a feeling of, of satisfaction? How did you feel when you heard that? 
Well, I knew it was because there was no motive, no physical evidence to connect me to it. It was on, and then even with the eyewitness, he'd never uh, verified any identification of me until he was at the police station after he identified somebody else in the lineup. And so everything that came after that was at the, after I was arrested. So there never was any evidence to even really bring me in for that. Lindsay, uh, you've been on this case for a very long time. Kim Gardner had gone to court once before uh, trying to get a new trial. What was different this time? You know, what was different is Lamar Johnson. Um, through that protracted motion for new trial in St. Louis, all the way to the Missouri Supreme Court, the question was, do we have this prosecutor in Missouri have the legal authority to go to court and fix a wrongful conviction? The court said no, but called on the legislature to provide a law. The legislature did just that and passed a law giving prosecutors the power and the authority to correct wrongful convictions, which up until that point did not exist, but for Lamar Johnson's case. Kim Gardner in uh, 2022 filed the motion because of that law under that statute that was created by the both of them. Lamar, you spent nearly you, three decades in prison, your 20s, your 30s, most in your 40s. You told us in, uh, when we met last time that as long as there's life, there's hope. You had so many setbacks, so many times the court said no. How did you keep your hope alive during that time? It was all I had. And I could not imagine giving up on something that I know was rightfully taken from me. And I, I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't imagine just giving up. Not only did you keep hope alive, but you, you, you don't seem angry. And you didn't seem angry at what was done to you, at what happened to you. How, how do you explain that? Well, holding on to anger, you just really would be just be trading one prison for another. And uh, it, 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 that's, there's nothing in, in that to gain. And even though there has been a lot of setbacks and, and disappointments, you know, in the end, there's still a lot to be joyful about. And so I hang on to that. What, um, what have you been spending your time since, uh, since, since Tuesday? Uh, eating and uh, having my <laughs> friend run me around. That's what I've been doing. Uh, enjoying all the foods that uh, I didn't get inside. inside. I've uh, been able to, to meet with some, some friends and family and just try to get used to how much the world has changed. Uh, just the technology and uh, all the choices going inside of a grocery store, uh, all those things is just amazing and probably things that a lot of people on the outside don't really give much thought to. Is someone helping you with the transition? Yeah, he's a uh, friend of mine, close friend of mine. Actually, he's an, he's, an, he's an exoneree himself. His name is Ricky Kidd. And he was exonerated about three or four years ago. And uh, he, he's been very helpful because he's, he's experienced this. Lindsay, how many other Lamar Johnsons are there in prison waiting for an attorney like you to come along? Too many, uh, more than there are lawyers for. Conservative estimates are between two and 5%. And when you think about 2 million people being in custody, um, I'm not good at math, but it's a breathtaking number. And Lindsay, as I talked about how many years was take, were taken away from, from Lamar, under Missouri law, he gets, is, gets nothing, gets no restitution uh, or compensation. Does the state owe him something? I believe the state owes him more than uh, they could ever repay him. He's lost more, um, you know, the time that he can never get back. But Missouri does have a compensation package, but it is so narrow that very, very few people qualify for it. Can you try to get compensation? There's pending legislation in the legislature right now that would expand uh, the eligibility under Missouri's compensation package to include folks like Lamar Johnson, Larry, uh, and Ricky Kidd, and so many others. Um, it has stalled in legislations prior. I am hopeful that um, this case will help highlight the need for that, but it's up to the legislature to do the right thing here. He has a GoFundMe, and through the generosity of, you know, people all over the country and Europe even were getting donations. You know, people are donating um, small amounts to him that are adding up to, you know, enough money for him to start a life. But ultimately he, he is depending on the generosity of the public right now.
Lamar, I know you saw your mother, May, and your daughter, Kiara, in, they came to visit you in prison. But what was it like to see them uh, without the guards standing there with your, not in that visiting room? Yeah, uh, uh, you know, in, inside, in, in prison, you only are allowed two to three, three second brief hugs. And so that's one of the things that I got to do is to hold them and to uh, just just to have a proper hug and to, to, for them to know that, you know, I'm, I'm out and that uh, I didn't do this and, and, and allows us to heal. And have I read this correctly that Kiara is getting married in April, your daughter? Um, She's getting married in April and I am overjoyed to be able to, to, to be there and watch that. Uh, that happened. Lamar, have you thought much beyond that, beyond uh, what the future holds for you, what you might do, what you might want to do, try to do? Well, I mean, I worked for DOC for 30 years, so um, I, I learned how to become, to, to transcribe in Braille. I know some graphic arts, but I am open to doing anything. I just want an opportunity, uh, job opportunities, which unfortunately is not uh, afforded to me by the state of Missouri. I mean, if I was getting out on parole, they would provide all type of assistance, transportation, housing, uh, empl employment even, but they don't do that for, for exonerees. And so uh, that's, you know, that's, that's something that I would hope the legislator would look at as well. And Lamar, when I asked you what you missed uh, in prison, you said you missed the things you hadn't done, that you hadn't done yet. And you specifically mentioned uh, swimming in the ocean. Uh, have you got a have you got an ocean trip planned? Uh, I don't have one planned, but uh, you know, God willing, I'll, I'll get that opportunity. Uh, that and uh, 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 flying in an airplane. So maybe I'll get to do that to fly the airplane to get to the ocean, and and I'll enjoy both at the same time. Do it all in one trip. Uh, Lamar Johnson, Lindsey Reynolds, thank you very much. And Lamar, we wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you so much for having. Thank you. We may still be a year away from the first presidential primary contests, but the Republican field is officially taking shape. Nikki Haley kicked off her campaign this week, and several other potential candidates are eyeing a run. South Carolina, home to one of the first primary contests next year, was in the Republican spotlight this week. I am running for president of the United States of America. As former Governor Nikki Haley threw her hat into the 2024 ring. America is not past our prime. It's just that our politicians are past theirs. The former UN ambassador and daughter of Indian immigrants offering her party a new vision of leadership. We're ready, ready to move past the stale ideas and faded names of the past. And we are more than ready for a new generation to lead us into the future. It's a message that could resonate with Republican voters. A line for new leadership, yeah. younger leadership yeah. as well. That's what we need. More than half of them say they'll vote for a candidate other than former President Donald Trump, according to a new Quinnipiac University poll. Go for it, Nikki. If you could beat Donald Trump, I'll be happy. While she is the first Republican to challenge Trump for the nomination, others are expected to join the fray, with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former Vice President Mike Pence, and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott among those weighing a campaign. I'm Tim Scott. Scott, who was first appointed to the Senate by Haley 10 years ago, also found himself in the Palmetto State spotlight. The story of America is not defined by our original sin. The story of America is defined by our redemption. Delivering a Black History Month speech to the Charleston Republican Party last night and testing themes that could be part of an eventual presidential campaign. Listen. I understand being treated as a second-class citizen because of the color of my skin. I refuse, I refuse to be treated as a second-class citizen because of the color of my party. I'm not playing that game twice. Nikki Haley. Haley ended her first week as a candidate in New Hampshire, but she and Scott will cross paths again soon in another early GOP contest date, with both of them planning trips to Iowa next week.
for a closer look at the 2024 race. Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter is in South Carolina and was at both Nikki Haley and Tim Scott's speeches this week. Amy, always good to see you. Let's just start with those messages we heard from both Tim Scott and Nikki Haley. They're talking about a new generation of leadership, a generational change, drawing lines that say they're different from former President Trump, but not really anti-Trump. What what is the lane right. that they're trying to occupy here? Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. So if you look at the Republican electorate right now, about 30 percent, maybe 35 percent are locked in with Donald Trump. They are not interested in voting for any other candidate than Donald Trump. Probably 10 percent or so are considered anti-Trump voters. They don't want and they will never vote for Donald Trump in a primary. That leaves a pretty wide swath of Republican voters who aren't anti-Trump but are looking and are open to an alternative. And that's the lane that all these candidates want to try to fit into. Now, one model of that lane is the Ron DeSantis model, which says, I'm going to be a lot like Donald Trump. You all like Donald Trump for a reason, because he goes after the establishment, the elites, the mainstream media. I'm going to be just like that. And he's doing pretty well in the polls right now, at least the early polls. What Nikki Haley and Tim Scott are doing, though, is they're saying, essentially, there's not enough room for me in this lane, uh, the sort of pugilistic, we're going to take it to the elite and the establishment in that same way. They're running more as happy warriors than they are as culture warriors. If Donald Trump was, as we saw in his uh, inaugural speech, talking about American carnage, uh, Nikki Haley, in her speech running for president, was much more Reagan-esque, more mourning in America. And the hope that uh, Nikki Haley is making, or at least made the case that she's making, is that this more optimistic, more aspirational message, while still she's still on the attack, let's be clear, she's not running as a moderate, she's not running as an anti-Trump candidate, but what she's suggesting is that this is a more um, electable message. She says over and over again, you know, Republicans have lost the popular vote for president in seven of the last eight elections. And what she's basically saying uh, to Republican voters is you can get a fighter in me. She talked a lot about being a fighter, being an underdog, going after the establishment as uh, a governor, as a candidate in her uh, in her past life. Um, so you can still get that. But I'm going to bring people in, bring in those voters who were turned off by Donald Trump and maybe turned off by someone like Ron DeSantis as well. So, Amy, how is that happy warrior message landing? You're, you're in the room. You're watching people, listening to them, talking to them right. as they hear these messages. Did anyone you talked to say they would back Haley or Scott for president? So Trump's shadow is still really very, very long here in South Carolina. And we were in Charleston, which is where... Uh, I think you would it'd be fair to say there are a lot of Republicans here who probably aren't big Trump fans or would be more open to somebody like a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott or somebody actually who is running against Donald Trump, not just uh, somebody who's different from Donald Trump. The, the real question is whether or not they will be appealing to voters, again, just like in any other state, who are looking for an alternative and but don't necessarily want someone who's all that different, right? This aspirational, more optimistic message, sort of a Reagan-esque message, let's be clear, it hasn't been that successful for Republicans since Donald Trump came onto the scene, at least not in primaries. We saw this, obviously, in 2016. We saw it in 2022, the candidates who won primaries where, uh, for governor, for Senate, Congress ran much more like Donald Trump than like a Nikki Haley or a Tim Scott. So the appetite may not be there. So, Amy, these are both candidates from South Carolina, both also candidates of color, right? And when so much of the party messaging right now seems to be pushing back on this idea of a more diverse America, decrying the so-called woke agenda, how do these two candidates fit into that? Yeah, it was fascinating. They didn't use the term woke at all. Instead, again, in the same theme of being more aspirational or inspirational, they say, 
look at me, look at my family. How can we be a country that doesn't offer uh, the uh, prospect of achieving success when I've been able to do all of these things? My family's been able to succeed because we're a country, as um, uh, Nikki Haley says, we need to stop our self-loathing is her term, her way of talking about that. So again, trying to really lean in instead of grievance, leaning in to the aspiration. Amy Walter of the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter joining us tonight from South Carolina. Amy, always good to see you. Great to see you. Thank you. As bids for the Republican presidential nomination ramp up and new details emerge about the false claims of fraud from the last presidential election, it's time for the analysis of Brooks and Capehart. That's New York Times columnist David Brooks and Jonathan Capehart, associate editor for The Washington Post. With a welcome to you both, let's start with this revelation late last night in this court filing in Dominion Voting Systems lawsuit against Fox News showing that Fox executives and hosts didn't believe the election lies that they were peddling on television. David, what do you make of this notion that Fox determined that telling the truth and being straight with its vote with its viewers was not good for its bottom line? Yeah, I don't know whether to feel relieved or not that Tucker didn't really believe what he was saying. Like, maybe, maybe has some core in there that's actually honest. You know, all of us, I mean, here in Sainted PBS, we don't go after profits, but at the New York Times and most other news organizations, we have, we have two missions. Uh, we want to tell the truth. We want to live up to the ethics of our profession. We also want to attract readers and serve our, our viewers and make money for our company. And, you know, dealing with that tension is not unique. Doctors do it. Lawyers do it. And, but, and so you find a balance. And you try to hew to the code of your profession and do it the best you can and hope that readers will, will appreciate that. At Fox, that's apparently not how it works. And that the ethos of, of following the code of honesty, reporting, of telling the truth, which is our only job. Our only job is just to tell the truth and not be partisan. That's our job. And if you can't do the basics of the job, then pretty soon you, you lose all bear, more and more moral bearing. And I think not everybody at that agency, a lot of people really left. But a lot of people uh, who used to be friends of mine, um, they lost all bear, moral bearing and, and chose. And, and Jonathan, this in many ways reaffirms what critics of Fox News have believed all along, that even though it has news in the title, that that is a thin veneer at best. Uh, yeah, very thin. It's more like carpaccio, if you want to give a culinary analogy. Look, what this Dominion paper, uh, the, the filing shows is that the, bi the big lie is indeed a big lie, and that the people who were perpetuating it knew it was a lie, and yet they still went on air night after night after night, perpetuating it to the detriment of our country. And yeah, they, they lost their balance. They lost their moral core, if any of them had any. And the idea that Tucker Carlson says one thing on air and believes something else uh, uh, off camera is deeply, deeply disturbing because of what we have seen that kind of talk, that kind of rhetoric led to. January 6th, and we're still dealing with people who believe the nonsense that was being spouted on Fox News. And one other thing that I don't think David said, but it should also be pointed out, the reason why there's so much attention on Fox News isn't just because they were purveyors of the big lie, but because it is the number one cable channel by multiples. So a majority of people watching cable television are watching Fox News, and that's what makes what's come out in these Dominion papers so incredibly disturbing. Well, staying on the topic of false claims of fraud, let's talk about the developments out of that special grand jury in Georgia pro probing former President Donald Trump's election-stealing efforts in that state. There was an excerpt released this past week of the special grand jury's report, as you both know, that recommended indictments of one or more people based on perjury. And that was it. That's all we got, David. What's yeah. your assessment of it? Yeah, it was excerpt is generous. <laughs> <laughs> there really wasn't much to it. Uh, you know, I do think, um, you know, there are the three investigations we've been following for years, Southern District of New York, maybe Justice Department, and then Georgia. Georgia strikes me as the most real of them. 
because we really, Trump really did say, find me those votes, that you're not allowed to do that. And, but uh, I don't think we learned how far along. I think we should be worrying, is, is indicting a sitting president just on perjury without the underlying crime, is that really enough? Uh, I have to think more about that, but I, I would have a few doubts about that. But it, it suggests not much to me right now. Jonathan, to David's point, Georgia is where Donald Trump faces uh, some of the most legal exposure. Uh, what did you make of what we learned or what we didn't learn this past week? Well, one, one big thing, well, there are two big things. The first big thing is you had not politicians, not Democrats or, or partisans, not folks like us saying that, the, that there was no election fraud or even experts saying that there was no election fraud. What you have he had here is a grand jury of everyday people who were presented the evidence and they made a point of saying in that document that we saw no evidence of election fraud, that the, the election was 100 uh, uh, percent by, by the board, which is, you know, to the big lie, just blows that up. The other thing is, yeah, saying that there were people who perjured themselves before them and not knowing who they are is a big deal. What I want to know is what were the redactions? What, perjury seems to me like a low bar. I want to know, are there bigger charges that were recommended? And how many other shoes are going to drop down the road when, say, a Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis um, decides to indict people? We don't know what's coming. And I think we should have, you know, sort of a healthy wait and see. The wheels, of the wheels, the legal wheels grind slowly, but they grind. And I'm looking forward to what comes next. Well, the legal wheels might grind slowly, but the political wheels are moving pretty quickly in terms of the 2024 race. It looks like on the Republican side, we have a, a race on our hands. What was your assessment of Nikki Haley's rollout this past week? We heard Amy uh, Walter make the point about how she's making, how Haley's making the, the two cases, the generational case and the electability case for her candidacy. Yeah. And the personality case. Mm -hmm. uh, she's the nice one. <laughs> I guess the South Carolinian, Tim Scott, is also very nice. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, I think people are undercounting her. Uh, I think she's a good candidate. I think that story she tells, the Trump story, in some ways the DeSantis story, is a downward slope story. America used to be great, we're not great anymore. Her story and Tim Scott's story are an upward slope story. Uh, that look where we come from, look where we're going. That's, that's who we are as a country. And I think that story has implications. She's much more aggressive and muscular in foreign policy than Trump, or maybe we don't really know about DeSantis, in an era where Putin is attacking uh, Ukraine, as he is in, on the march in China, that may be worth it. I also think there's a, there's a lane, there's a Trumpy lane for sure, and I, th I would put both DeSantis and Trump in it, but there's a lane of pre-Trump Republican, or let's say Trump-affected Republicans, but who are still sort of normal Republicans like corporations, uh, want a muscular foreign policy, and that lane in 2022 did pretty well. And you might almost say that there are more people who like Mike DeWine as a Republican than like Donald Trump. And so I, I maintain the belief that there's a, another version of that kind of normie Republican. And I think she fits pretty well into, into that lane, along with a bunch of others. Jonathan, looking ahead a little bit, or I guess actually a lot, how, how did Democrats contend with a, to use the phrase, normie Republican if that Republican gets the nomination? Well, that Republican has to get the nomination. And I think a lot of Democrats are not holding their breath that a normie Republican is actually going to, uh, is actually going to win. Uh, I think that uh, Governor Nikki Haley, Ambassador Haley, the problem she has is her flip-flop-flip situation when it comes to supporting or criticizing Donald Trump. She went to work for him. Also, I think she's going to have a problem explaining to the MAGA base of the party um, why she took down the Confederate flag and her views on race as she talked about them then. I think we, you played earlier, as I, remember, I thought I heard in my ear earlier, Senator Tim Scott talking very forthrightly about issues of race and his place in the party. And I think he will stand, uh, will do much, much better talking about and must talk about issues of race and the Republican Party, and he'll be able to do so with a whole lot more credibility than, say, Nikki Haley can, simply because in her, in her kickoff speech, 
She didn't talk about any of that. She talked about her origin story and her, her immigrant story, but she didn't get into any of the discrimination that her family faced or the horrific story about her father and his, the encounter that he had, uh, discrimination that he had. How is she going to talk about that on the campaign trail? That's what I'm looking forward to. And if those two happy warriors can beat out the angry Trump and DeSantis wing, more power to them, but they still have to face a Democratic, uh, a Democratic nominee who I still think is going to be the sitting president, and it's not going to be a cakewalk for them. In the minutes that we have left, I'd like to have you both reflect on the news this past week of Senator John Fetterman checking himself into Walter Reed to receive uh, inpatient treatment for clinical depression. Uh, David, you wrote a piece for The Times earlier this month uh, about a friend of yours who struggled with mental illness. The headline was, How Do You Serve a Friend in Despair? And there was a line in this op-ed you wrote that just hit me in the chest. And, and it's this, I am told that one of the brutalities of the illness is the impossibility of articulating exactly what that pain consists of. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I walked with my friend for three years until he lost his life to depression. Uh, and I learned, I started a low knowledge of how to deal with it. And so I was like, you have a great life, you have a great family, you love your wife, and, and that's the wrong thing to say. And then I would give him advice on what to do. Uh, you know, you, he was a surgeon. You used to do surgery in Vietnam. That was so rewarding. Do that. And that's just saying, I don't understand what you're going through. And so what I eventually learned and what I hope friends of John Fetterman learn is you're not going to talk them out of it. You're just going to walk with them through it. You're just going to be there. You're going to be a witness. You show you haven't walked away. And you'll be with them on the other side. And that's all you can do for a friend. But it's the, a great service you can do for a friend. Yeah. Jonathan? Um, well, one, David, I sent David an email the moment I finished reading his beautiful and raw piece about his friend Pete. And I encourage everyone to read it. It is vital. Um, I think uh, Senator Fetterman um, should be lauded for not only going to proactively seek help, but then making sure that the American people and the, the people of Pennsylvania know about what he's done. I think down the road, we're going to see that what John, Fet what Senator Fetterman has done has impacted millions of people in a positive way. Jonathan Capehart, David Brooks, have a great weekend, gentlemen. It's good to see you both. Remember, there is much more online, including a story about a new law in New Orleans that requires the city's restaurants to remove soda as a drink option for kids' meals. And be sure to tune into Washington Week tonight for analysis of Nikki Haley's presidential bid and the rest of the week's political headlines. And watch PBS News Weekend tomorrow for the latest from Ukraine as the war-torn country prepares to mark the first anniversary of the Russian invasion. And that is the news hour. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Jeff Bennett. Have a great weekend.